Okay, if I can have everybody's attention. Got a couple of announcements. First of all, our regular song leader called me at the last minute to tell me that he was ill this morning, so he's not going to be leading singing. And in the providence of God, remember we studied that doctrine last week, uh, the hymns for, actually the hymns for the first hour were left out. We have hymns marked first hour, but since there are three, that second hour. So we didn't have hymns, so that means that uh, uh, we're going to follow the leading of the Lord and not have any hymns first hour. A couple of other announcements, though. First of all, make sure you have on your calendar a work day on the 20th. We have a lot of things to do, and before the uh, fall really gets here in full uh, swing, we need to do some cleanup around the property. And then remember, for those of you who may have forgotten, that on that during the month of September, prayer meeting Bible class is going to be on Tuesday night instead of Wednesday night until that last week. And then, since the 30th of September happens to fall on a Tuesday, but that is still the first week of October, we will return to our normal schedule on October the 1st of Wednesday night prayer meeting. And then it's not in your bulletin, but mark it for October the 8th. October the 8th, there will not be uh, Wednesday night prayer meeting Bible class, which is our normal procedure when I head out to the WHW conference in Los Angeles that week. And you can be praying for that as well. So three announcements. Workday on the 20th. Remember Tuesday night instead of Wednesday night in the month of September and then October the 8th, no midweek Bible class. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we will have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to confess any known sin to God the Father in the privacy of your priesthood, so that you can be in fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and be ready to study the word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we live in a nation where we have freedom to gather together and worship, freedom to do so without government interference, without the government establishing any particular religious orientation or denomination. Father, we thank you for the freedoms that we have that have been purchased for us by the 
death of so many who have made the ultimate sacrifice serving in the military of this country to protect and preserve these freedoms. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for our president, for our military leaders and political leaders, that you might give them wisdom in making the kinds of decisions necessary to continue to uh, prosecute the war against terrorism as well as to protect the homeland. Father, we pray for us as believers because we recognize that as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And the most important thing that each of us can do individually is to pay attention to our own spiritual life, to make doctrine the number one priority, and to make sure that we are continuing to advance to spiritual maturity. And, Father, we recognize that the highest form of worship is to learn how you think and to make your thinking our thinking. And so, Father, we realize the highest form of worship is the study of your word. So we gather together as regularly as possible in order to submit our thinking to the instruction of the Word of God so that we can exchange our human viewpoint for divine viewpoint. Father, we pray that we might be up to this challenge this morning under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the current events that has been making headlines over the last several weeks, not months, has been the display of a sculpture in uh, Alabama with the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court building of, uh, of that state. And I just thought I would read to you a couple of examples of how the Founding Fathers saw the relationship of Christianity to the political sphere. The uh, Bill of Rights and the Constitution prevent... Provide for the freedom of religion and prevent the the establishment by the federal government of any religious system. That does not mean that the nation is supposed to be our religious. That is a misnomer. It is impossible. So I've said many times the statement that there is no God is just as much a religious statement and a theological statement as a statement that there is a God. The the ignoring of God in the marketplace of ideas is as much a statement of religious impact as a positive statement. Ultimately, when you come to the issue of law, which has to do with morals and absolutes in some ways, not everything in the law is related to morals, but it relates to absolutes, then those issues must be decided on the basis of a value system. And that value system either derives from uh, one philosophy or another, or one religious system or another. And so the Founding Fathers all recognized that absolutes that uh, provided a foundation for law had to come from outside of creation. If it comes from inside creation, now we go to our creator-creature distinction, if it comes from inside creation, then it's changeable, and it is uh, completely relative. Now, Thomas McKean was one of the founding fathers, a signer of the Declaration of Independence uh, as a member from Delaware, and he was also the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania and Governor. He had the distinction of serving in two states at the same time. And as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, 
he was responsible for reviewing a number of cases and jury decisions and sentences. In 1778, there was a case of the Republic versus John Roberts. And in that case, the jury found John Roberts guilty of treason and sentenced him to death. After Thomas McKean read the verdict, this was his, his injunction to John Roberts. Quote, The jury has found you guilty of treason and has sentenced you to be executed for that reason. John Roberts, with this sentence, this means that you have very few days left to, to you upon this earth. It behooves you, therefore, in this period of time to make peace with your Maker. You need to find a remission of your sins through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to call for someone who can lead you to that relationship with Jesus, whether it be a minister or a friend or just the sacred word of God. You are about to launch out into eternity, and you are not prepared to meet God. So let's work on that right now. So obviously he did not think that God should be removed from the courtroom. James Wilson, another founding father, who signed the Constitution and was a member of that uh, Constitutional Convention and spoke frequently on the floor of the Constitutional Convention, uh, was put by George Washington on the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1792, he authored America's first legal commentaries on the Constitution. And this is what he wrote uh, in, in those commentaries. Quote, human law must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of that law which is divine. Far from being rivals or enemies, religion and law are twin sisters, friends, and mutual assistants. Indeed, these two sciences run into each other. So that's just to let you know that this current controversy is one that came as a result of certain shifts that took place in the thinking of this country in the 19th century. And what is happening when you come to the interpretation of the Constitution today, they view it as a, quote, living document and something that is fluid and is open to change. And that is a fraudulent view of interpretation. I suggest that if any of you try to use that argument when you interpret the guidelines for filling out your income tax, you will discover just how fraudulent that argument is and how unacceptable it is. Documents, legal contracts, are not fluid documents. They are not living documents. They are not subject to reinterpretation from one generation to the next. Uh, that has terrible implications for law. Just basic contract law would be in a state of complete chaos if that were true. So with that in mind, maybe you can listen to the news with a little more uh, discernment and a little more understanding. We're continuing our study this morning on the doctrine of the ascension and the session of Jesus Christ. Now, we are in this study as sort of a preamble or introduction to our study on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the reason is because in Ephesians 4, 8 and following, the Apostle Paul connects the ascension of Christ to his giving of gifts, spiritual gifts, to the church, to believers in the church age. In doing so, the Apostle Paul quoted from Psalm 68, verse 17, he ascended on high and led, captive, uh, led captivity captives, and he gave gifts to men. In the original, it says he received gifts from men, but the demonstration and the re 
a statement of that verse under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was in order to make a particular point related to spiritual gifts. Now, we have gone through a number of these Old Testament passages, and I'm drilling this into you, and we've taken a lot of time on this, because people today are basically pretty ignorant of the Old Testament. And yet, when we come to these passages, they are they deal with the ascension and session, especially in the book of Hebrews. It's just laden with Old Testament references. I don't know what translation uh, you use. I usually recommend a either New American Standard translation or a uh, New King James uh, translation. Now, there's a difference between a translation and a study Bible. Every now and then people ask me one question or the other, and usually there's a level of confusion about the difference. And a translation is the text itself, and the study Bible has to do with the notes and cross-references and maps and introductory material and things of that nature in the study Bible. And so I usually recommend uh, the Thomas Nelson Study Bible, and it comes in the New King James translation, which I recommend. But I recommend one or the other. Now, I have in my New King James translation an an italics. they, They use italics to set apart quotes from the Old Testament. And if you just sort of page your way through uh, Hebrews, you will see that in almost every column there are quotes from Old Testament passages. And if there aren't quotes, there are allusions to Old Testament passages such that you cannot understand uh, the first thing about what the writer of Hebrews is saying if you don't understand all the background from the Old Testament. So we've taken our time to look at these Old Testament passages because In the New Testament, when the writers refer to the ascension and the session, they go back to several psalms and pick up the imagery from those psalms and use that imagery to teach about the current session of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just remind ourselves where we've gone. It's been building a case. This is not simple. For some of you who are new... You may have gotten a little lost and turned around in this study, but I keep trying to go back at the beginning and pull all the loose threads together so you see how I am building the case from the Scripture. In Daniel 7, we looked at the prophecy there that focused on the the history of mankind, various kingdoms from Babylon to Persia to, um, to Greece to Rome and to the future revived Roman Empire. We saw there that the last kingdom will be destroyed by a fifth kingdom who is ruled by the Son of Man. All of the human kingdoms are represented as beasts, which shows God's perspective on the nature of human kingdoms. All man-based political systems in this fallen world, all man-based economic systems in this in this current world are subject to failure because it's they are conducted by fallen fallen men and they are all characterized uh, by beastliness. In contrast, the future kingdom will be run by the Son of Man, which is a title that is applied by him by himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Daniel seven, we noted three things that. Uh, every that the purpose for him setting up that kingdom in the future is that every nation might serve him in that kingdom. So it's not simply a Jewish kingdom. That was a new idea. The Jews were looking forward to a Jewish-oriented kingdom, 
But in the fifth kingdom, it will not be a Jewish kingdom, but every nation will serve him. Furthermore, we're told in verse 14 of Daniel 7 that the kingdom is going to be given to him at a future time. That means that during this a time prior to that, he does not have dominion. He does not have the kingdom. So we are living in a period when the kingdom is not present. Third, we see that the establishment of that kingdom is going to be accomplished to someone who is a truly uh, human founder and leader. He is the son of man. The true leader of the true character of that leader then was discovered when we went to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, we saw that the king would be divine, that there would also be a period of time before the king was given the kingdom. And third, that when the king got the kingdom, he would execute a, a rule that was characterized as a rule of iron. Okay, that's important. It's a future kingdom. When he gets the kingdom, he will have a rule of iron. Then last time we went to Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, we noted that, first of all, that that kingdom is future. That there will be, an also, and secondly, that it would be an, an interim period. He is told initially to sit at the Father's right hand, Psalm 110, Verse 1, and there is this passive period prior to being given the kingdom, and it's during that period that his enemies will be subdued. The second thing that we noted from Psalm 110 and Psalm 110 verse 4 is that there was a priestly aspect to this royal reign, that this king would not only be human, son of man, Daniel 7, he would be divine, uh, my begotten son, Psalm 2, but that he would be a king priest. And the priestly idea is related to the priesthood of Melchizedek, not the priesthood of, of Levi. So it's a universal Gentile priesthood that is the model and is the background for understanding the priesthood of this future king. So that brings us to our to a conclusion from last time that the ascension and session is an event that is loaded with details that are taken from these various Old Testament passages. We've seen that the king has come in the first advent. He was rejected, so the kingdom was not established. He ascended because of that rejection, and so he is accomplishing something during that ascension that is in prepar- that prepares or that is in preparation for the future kingdom and the establishment of that future kingdom. And that during this interim period, when he is waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool, the king does not reign over a global, physical, political kingdom on the earth, and that he is not sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. This is the problem that I've pointed out is inherent in all uh, covenant theology, all replacement theology, which is almost every system of theology, whether it's Lutheran, Roman Catholic, or Calvinistic, and that even this new form of dispensationalism that's come out of Dallas Seminary, uh, progressive dispensationalism, which is neither progressive nor dispensational, but they want to all take the present seating of Christ in heaven as being on the throne of David, but that throne is not in heaven and it's not in Zion.
So right now we have Jesus in his humanity sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Now this is important because in his ascension we noted from several passages that Jesus ascended through the heavenlies to be seated above all authority, all principalities, and all powers. A definite reference to angelic authorities and angelic powers. So he is seated at the right hand of God, and that refers to his humanity. In his deity, Jesus Christ has always been in authority over all of the angels and over all of the creatures. He is the creator, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. But in his humanity now, he has been elevated to this position at the right hand of God the Father. So by looking at these various Old Testament passages, we can now go to some New Testament passages to see how the New Testament writers handle those psalms and how they use those psalms in reference to the current uh, session of Christ. So we'll begin by going to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be moving back and forth through Hebrews for a while as we look at how the writer of Hebrews utilizes these Old Testament passages. In Hebrews 1-2 we're told, In these last days, a term referring to the church age as a whole, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Verse 3, And he, that is the Son, is the radiance of his glory, that is the outflashing, the expression of the glory of God. This is a, a clear reference to the full deity of Jesus Christ, that he is undiminished deity and true humanity as well. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And as soon as we see that terminology, he sat down at the right hand, we should think of Psalm 110.1, even though that phrase is not italicized in your Bibles, it is a direct reference to Psalm 110.1. When he had made purification of sins, once redemption was accomplished, Jesus Christ sat down. It is a picture of the completedness of his work on the cross. It is also a picture of his being completely accepted by God the Father and a point we'll return to in a few moments. And then we go to Psalm, I mean to Hebrews 1.13, skip down to the end of the chapter. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So in Hebrews 1.3 and 1.13, we see a direct reference back to Psalm 110. So the point is that Christ in his session, in his ascension, has been elevated above all creatures. He's been elevated above all the, all the angelic forces, and he currently outranks everyone. He is also the one who is ruling. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is at the helm of the universe, not just Jesus Christ in his deity, but Jesus Christ is the God-man. We'll come back before we're done this morning to a review of the hypostatic union, 
But remember in the definition of the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, united with true humanity forever. It didn't end at the crucifixion. It didn't end at the resurrection. It didn't end at the ascension. Jesus Christ will be in the God-man union throughout all of eternity. A billion years from now, you're going to be able to walk up to him and see and touch and feel the nail prints and the scars from the crucifixion. He will be in that state forever and ever. So he is, in his deity, he is omnipresent, but in his humanity, he is localized because that resurrection body must be in one place, and that is at the right hand of God the Father. So in Hebrews 1, verse 3 and verse 13, the point that we see is Christ now outranks everyone, and it is a man who is seated at the right hand of God the Father waiting for something, waiting for his enemies to be a footstool. Then we go to Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 pulls in the second aspect that we picked up in Psalm 110, and that is the priestly nature of his reign. Hebrews 6.19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice the emphasis on the present session is not on his royalty, it's not on his kingship, it's not on his reigning, it is on his being a priest. This is the emphasis. He is priest-king, but the emphasis now is on his priestly work, which is in preparation for the kingly work. The kingly work does not come until he is given dominion, until he is given the kingdom, which doesn't happen until the second coming. So the emphasis then is not on what we saw in Psalm 2.9, that he would reign with a rule of iron, but it is on his priesthood. So there's clearly a gap between what was accomplished at the cross and what will be accomplished when he comes to reign, that there is no present reigning in terms of the kingdom. There's a mystery form of the kingdom, but he is not reigning on the throne of David, and he has not yet been given dominion. Another passage that deals with his priestly work is in Hebrews 9, verse 11, and also verse 24. Hebrews 9:11 we're told, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And then in verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven, heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, Hebrews 9, 11 and 24, both emphasize the present session of Christ as a function not of his royal reign, but of his priesthood. Now, as a function of his priesthood, we're going to see that this has to do with not only his intercessory ministry, but it has to do with the distribution of spiritual gifts. 
But before we get there, we have to understand why this is taking place. What is God accomplishing during this present age? So we go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verses 3 through 5 tells us about who Jesus is and what he is doing. We have already seen how this relates to Psalm 110. And then when we get to verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, First, there are two quotes in verse 5. First quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That comes from Psalm 2. Second quote, Again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, comes from Psalm 89, and these two passages together relate the context of Hebrews 1, 3 through 5 to the Davidic covenant and this ruler, present rule of Christ, or excuse me, <coughs> the present session of Christ to his place in the Davidic covenant as the royal son and uh, royal son of God who is fully God, undiminished deity. Now, having looked at this, we need to address the question, what is going on in this session where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? And the whole picture here, the imagery is, is in terms of our culture, probably the best thing is the Supreme Court of sort of a Supreme Court imagery. God is the supreme judge of the universe. He is the one who's ruling and in charge of everything. And Jesus Christ comes and sits at the right hand of God the Father, who is pictured as this judge who is ruling over all of human history. And he is seated at the right hand of God for a reason. And we're told in the passage that it is until... I make your enemies a footstool. So God the Father is working out something, working out his purposes in human history to accomplish something. And this relates to the angelic conflict. Now, when you study strategy, strategy has to do with the overall plan of action. Uh, tactics has to do with individual implementation of the strategy at different phases of, of its accomplishment. But strategy has to do with the overall uh, plan. One of the most brilliant observations that's been made on strategy was made by B.H. Liddell Hart, who was a military uh, historian who wrote in a book called Strategy that came out in about 1952 or 53. As a result of his study of strategy, the most successful military campaigns throughout all of history, and he studied all the wars, all the great battles, that the most successful campaigns had one thing in common, and that was an indirect strategy. It wasn't a frontal assault. Furthermore, I just finished reading a brilliant, a wonderful book about a brilliant man named John Boyd. John Boyd is someone that most of us never heard of, and yet he labored away in the bowels of the Pentagon for many years, fighting the uh, establishment in many ways. And then after he retired from the Air Force, he went on to to a career in developing and uh, bringing back some concepts in military strategy that bore tremendous fruit in the victory of the first Gulf War. And a recent biography has been written on him. It's simply called Boyd, B-O-Y-D. It's very well written. And 
one of the things that he recovered in his study of strategy is the importance of maneuver. And he picked up the, he picked up a lot of ideas from Sun Tzu, who was, uh, famous ancient, uh, Chinese military strategist. And most of us, I mean, I did a, had a minor in military science when I was in college and we never heard of Sun Tzu. But by the early 80s and mid-80s, his thinking came back, and that was mostly due to uh, John Boyd. And one of the things that he discovered was the importance of flanking and maneuver and moving uh, quickly and not getting bogged down in frontal assaults in different uh, defensive positions, but to just keep moving, keep moving, and use the analogy of water running downhill. When there's an obstacle, it just goes around it and keeps flowing. And it was that idea of rapid maneuver that came to bear in the uh, first Gulf War. Well, these ideas are clearly evident in how Jesus Christ takes on Satan in the angelic conflict. The overall strategy is indirect. You don't see Jesus Christ coming to earth and having a head-to-head confrontation with Satan. In fact, he comes to offer the kingdom. Satan thinks he wins this great victory because he crucifies the promised Messiah and gets him, has him crucified and put to death. And in that very action, Satan seals his own doom. I mean, it's just a brilliant strategic act by God. And so the defeat of Satan at the cross is the strategic victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over Satan. And that sets the stage then for what is being accomplished tactically in the life of the individual believer in the church age. As each individual believer uh, lives out the Christian life and applies the principles of this Christian life, then they achieve tactical victory and become a witness against Satan in the angelic conflict. Now, when Jesus Christ secures the strategic victory at the cross, it is based on his qualifications, which were established during his lifetime. Jesus Christ is qualified to go to the cross, not because he is God, but because he is a man who goes through all the various tests and sufferings that every man, every human being goes through, and he always succeeds because he applies the word. Now, most people, when they think about Jesus Christ and his qualifications, they think, well, he was tempted, the Scripture says, in all areas as we are, yet without sin. Well, of course he didn't sin. He was God. But you miss the whole point there. Too often we want to bail out in following the example of Christ by saying that, well, of course he did that. Of course he didn't have a problem there. And of course he solved that situation there. He was God. But if Jesus Christ had relied on his humanity at any stage, I mean, excuse me, if Jesus Christ had relied on his deity at any stage to solve his personal problems, then he would have been defeated. The point was for him to demonstrate as a man that he was passing all of the tests in his humanity by relying exclusively upon the power of God, relying upon the Holy Spirit. He was in complete contrast to Adam, who relied on his own thinking and his own resources to solve the temptation in the garden. So we let's look at a few examples to see how Jesus was qualified to go to the cross. We know from uh, his at the 
early stage of his ministry that he was taken into the wilderness, and there he was tempted by Satan. But I want to look at another example in Matthew chapter 26. So hold your place in Hebrews, and we'll turn back to Matthew chapter 26. This is the night before he went to the cross, when Jesus is with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here, the cross is just a few hours away, and Jesus is going to go aside in order to pray, in order to be strengthened for his coming test. Not only the physical test and the physical suffering that he would endure, but more significantly, the spiritual struggle that he would endure on the cross when the perfect Son of God would be made sin on our behalf. So let's start about Matthew 26, down around verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. So he sets them aside as sort of a guard detail while he goes off by himself. But he took with him, verse 37, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's James, the uh, brother of John, and John the Apostle, the author of the Gospel of John, and the, the three epistles of John, as well as the book of Revelation. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now, I want you to pay attention to uh, verse 37. Verse 37 tells us something about his humanity. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, and he said to them in verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Now, this is a profound statement. Jesus Christ is experiencing sorrow. He is distressed, agitated, emotionally because of what's coming up. This is not sin. Jesus Christ did not sin. So this tells us that at times there can be a sorrow and a sadness that is not sin. And just because you are sorrowful or sad does not mean that you are out of line spiritually or that something is wrong. Jesus Christ was sorrowful, He, which he... Uh, stated here in verse 38, but at the same time we know that he had a perfect joy, a perfect stability, and a perfect tranquility that undergirded this momentary sorrow and struggle that he endured in his humanity. And he is handle, how is he handling the sorrow? This is where our problem-solving devices come, come into play, is that it is not wrong to experience certain emotions at times, such as sadness and sorrow. What is wrong is how you handle it and letting that dictate your course of action. So Jesus says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little further, we're told, in verse 39, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he is wrestling with the fact that this burden of bearing the sins is so overwhelming that in his humanity he wants to step aside. But 
he does not let that cause him to fail, and he recognizes that, that nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. See, one of the things that happens with believers is we think that because certain temptations come our way or certain thoughts come into our mind, that that in and of itself is failure. That's not failure. It's not failure to think, oh, I have the opportunity to sin or get angry or do whatever it might be. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. The opportunity and the fact that you may realize some sin or think about some sin is not in and of itself a sin. It is what you do with that. You can think about it. You can have the opportunity to, if you're sad, to try to handle it through self-pity, through some sort of... uh, illegitimate means, going out and getting drunk and trying to drown your sorrows or or uh, calling people up and whining to other people about the problems that you're encountering in life and oh, how, how pathetic you are and oh, how sad and God must hate you. Or you can say, well, I'm in the midst of a real struggle and it really does weigh me down. I'm going to handle it by prayer and dependence upon the Lord and recognize that even in the midst of this circumstance, which may never change, God is going to sustain me and I'm going to rely on him. That's the execution of the faith rest drill. And in verse 40, Jesus then goes back to the disciples. And, of course, they don't really comprehend what's going on. And they're sleeping. They're very relaxed. And he says to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he recognizes the reality of the testing that is going on at this particular situation. Now, this whole passage in Matthew 26 reveals to us a tremendous struggle that is taking place inside the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the test. Is he going to solve the problem by relying on his deity, or is he going to solve the problem in his humanity by relying upon the power of God the Holy Spirit and claiming promises of Scripture? We know that he could have resolved this whole situation in his deity because of what he says in Matthew in Matthew 26:53, just skip down a few verses. Matthew 26:53, as he has been uh, confronted by the arresting authorities, he says to them, or after Peter cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest, Jesus says to Peter, "Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword." And he doesn't mean there that it's wrong to take military action. That's a false application. Verse 53, he says, Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? So Jesus recognizes that in his deity he could solve the problem. He could call upon God the Father. There would be twelve legions of angels there, and these human arresting authorities, the temple guards, would be dead in an instant. So he doesn't rely... on his deity, or use his own deity to resolve his personal problems. And the reason I say personal problems is because he did use his deity to solve the personal problems of other people. His mother came to him with a personal problem at the at the wedding of Cana that that her friend was going to be embarrassed because they were they had run out of wine, and so he solved her personal problem by turning the water into wine. He did it in his own deity, not through the power of the Holy Spirit 
not through the power of God the Father, but through his own power as God. It demonstrates that he is the creator. When Jesus stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he did that from his own power. He wasn't doing it so that he wouldn't be in danger. He was doing that in order to demonstrate his power over nature and to teach a lesson to the disciples. Now, there's a difference between Jesus performing miracles in his power for other people and Jesus performing miracles by means of God the Holy Spirit and living his own spiritual life in dependence upon God. The fact that Jesus Christ in his deity performs certain miracles does not violate this principle. Some people get that idea and they haven't thought it through very clearly at all. Jesus Christ had to perform these miracles in his own deity because he was demonstrating that he was who he claimed to be, and that is the Son of God, and that he came as the Son of God with power. So he's demonstrating that if you make the claim, and some people have done this, that Jesus performed every miracle during the incarnation through the power of God the Holy Spirit, then you have ripped out of the Scripture every evidence of deity. You have just taken the deity of Christ out of the incarnation. There would be no evidence of it anymore. The apostles performed many of those same miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts and during the apostolic age. They weren't God. So Jesus was performing certain of the miracles to demonstrate his own His own deity. Now, in all of this, when Jesus relied upon God the Father, he was demonstrating his qualification to go to the cross. And this is referred to in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. So let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. That is what he is doing during this church age, is bringing many sons to glory. That is a function of his priesthood. And it it, it was by whom are all things, and bring many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Captain of their salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is made perfect, that is, made complete, mature as in his own spiritual life as related to his humanity through suffering. So the sufferings in the spiritual life of the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the same function as the sufferings that you and I go through. It gives us an opportunity to rely upon God the Father and to rely upon the various problem-solving devices that he has given us so that we can be mature. So Jesus is mature, matured through this uh, process of suffering, and he is a pioneer for the spiritual life that we have today. This is also seen in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That doesn't mean that he learned, uh, had to learn obedience because he was disobedient. See, we get confused on this because that's our experience. But you did not have to learn that it was wrong to commit murder by committing murder, did you? 
You learn that from your parents and from other teachers that that was wrong to commit murder. Jesus, you do not have to commit sin or to be disobedient in order to learn obedience. So he learns obedience. He develops uh, the, the principles related to obedience and authority orientation in his humanity as he grew from stage to stage in, his, in the spiritual life that was his in his humanity. Hebrews 5.9, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this brings to bear two key doctrines related to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first of these is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The doctrine of the hypostatic union, which comes from the Greek word hupa stasis. H, and the U is transliterated as a Y, H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. And this has to do with substance or nature. And the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which was hammered out over 300 years of theological uh, investigation and thought. This is not something that somebody just came up with and imposed on the church. As they wrestled with all the various passages of Scripture, it took them several hundred years to properly articulate this. And it went through various different stages. But as it is final, was finally understood, recognize that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is undiminished deity. That means in his person, he still had in the incarnation every attribute of deity. He didn't give it up. Okay, some people get that idea through a misunderstanding of the doctrine of kenosis. He doesn't give it up. When Jesus Christ is lying in the manger in his infancy... He is still holding the world together. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. In his deity, he was still omnipresent. He was still omnipotent. So he has undiminished deity. He's no less sovereign after the incarnation than he was before the incarnation. He is no less omnipotent during the incarnation than he was before the incarnation. He is undiminished deity. That's one nature. This is united with true humanity. It is not fallen humanity, it is perfect humanity, the kind of humanity Adam had prior to the fall. These are united together in one person, so that he is the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have to be careful how we talk sometimes. You you may have heard people say, well, he did such and so out of his deity. Well, that's not technically true. He's not a split personality. He's not saying, okay, I'm going to do this uh, as God, and I'm going to do that as man. Some things that he does demonstrate that he is fully God. He also hungered, he thirsted, he's tired, he was weary, he sorrowed. This indicates that he is true humanity. But the whole person, the whole person hungered. See, he's two natures, but he's one person. This was one of the great battles in trying to work out the definition. Was you can't you can't come along and and treat it as if there are two natures 
and two persons. He's got to be one person. Neither can you have one nature where there's just a blending of the two. Sort of like blending uh, lemon juice and water and you get something, a third something, you get lemonade. You can blend, but when you blend deity and humanity, you would get something else. He wouldn't be God anymore. He wouldn't be man anymore. He would be a third something. So you have to make a distinction. You can't say there's just one nature. There has to be two natures. But they are united, and and that's the difficult thing for us to articulate, is what does it mean that he is united in one person? There is one person suffering on the cross. It is the humanity, the human nature, that is paying the penalty for the human race, because humanity must die as a substitute for humanity. But the whole person suffers. So Jesus Christ in his deity is, because of the whole person is suffering, the deity is present. It's not absent from the cross. But deity can't suffer. The humanity is suffering, but the whole person is suffering. See, now I'm confusing you, and that's the point. See, the one person suffers, but deity doesn't suffer. The humanity suffers. Furthermore, the deity is omnipotent, and at the same time that he is on the cross, he is upholding all things by the word of his power. So this, we have to be very careful not to, not to so distinguish the two that he becomes two persons, and not to so blend the two that he has one nature. So we talk about the fact that there are two natures united together in one person, without mixture of attributes. So you don't have a bleeding over of his human attributes into his deity or his divine attributes into his his humanity. So when we talk about his undiminished deity, we recognize that the divine attributes are not diminished or reduced, and he has all the attributes of deity Second thing, in terms of his humanity, he's fully human. He doesn't have just a human body. He has a human soul and a human spirit. He is fully human. One of the early attempts to explain this by a man named Apollinarius had the idea that Jesus had a human body and a human soul, but a divine spirit. Well, now you have, once again, a problem. He's not truly human because he doesn't have a, he's only two-thirds human. He doesn't have a human spirit. So he has true humanity, body, soul, and spirit. These are united forever. Ten billion years from now, they'll still be united. And this is without confusion. This is the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ is undiminished deity in true humanity. The second doctrine that undergirds all of this is the doctrine of the kenosis. And turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6 begins a key passage on the kenosis. Kenosis comes from a Greek word, a Greek word, a verb, actually, kanao, where we find in verse 8, let me see, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So the idea of the kenosis, the idea of the kenosis is the idea that used to, and translated in the New King James, made himself of no reputation. Earlier versions had the idea that he gave something up, or he emptied himself. And the problem with that terminology, emptied himself, is it makes it sound as if he gave up those attributes, that he gave up uh, some of his deity. The other problem we have is how this has been traditionally articulated. And I've been working on a better way to articulate the true biblical doctrine of kenosis. The way that I have taught this in the past, and the way that you have probably been taught as well, simply states that Jesus willingly, voluntarily, restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. Now, that's fine, but that doesn't say anything. Think about it. The eternal Son of God, a million years ago, before a billion years before God created the heavens and the earth, was not independent of God the Father. He never executed his attributes independent of the Father's plan. That would indicate that he was not one with the Father. So when we articulate the doctrine of kenosis, that Jesus voluntarily restricted the independent use of his divine attributes, it falls short of the real issue. The real issue is that he doesn't use his humanity to solve the problems that he faced during the incarnation. So let's amend our doctrine of the kenosis by saying Jesus restricted the independent use of his divine attributes to solve the pressures of life, and he accepted a creaturely dependent existence during his lifetime. He trusted God the Father just as we should trust God the Father in every problem that we face in life. So that the doctrine of kenosis is a description of how Jesus Christ handled the testing in his own spiritual life and demonstrated that only by 100% dependence on God could man the creature be successful. So when we look at Philippians 2.6, we're told who, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, a reference to being undiminished deity in the essence of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God. Now that is in contrast to Adam, who wanted to be equal with God. Jesus Christ was equal to God. He had all of the attributes of deity, but rather than holding on to those and saying that I have a right to use these to avoid these these problems I face in life, he limited himself. So he made himself of no reputation, or he limited uh, the use of his attributes. He didn't do away with them completely, because in his deity he cannot change. Jesus Christ the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So in his deity, Jesus Christ could not change. So he, he who upheld all things by the word of his power before the incarnation, still did it after the incarnation. But he wasn't using that power to solve the problems and the testings and the temptations that he faced in his um, humanity. 
So he took on the form of a bondservant, that is, like a man, and coming in the likeness of man, being a true, truly human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So as a result of that, God has highly exalted him. This is what happens in the ascension when Jesus Christ ascends above all the authorities and powers. To When he ascends to heaven, then God honors him and exalts him, gives him a name which is above every name. And he is then seated at the Father's right hand. So by being qualified to go to the cross... Jesus Christ is then qualified for that future reign. But something has to happen in the meantime. There is a, as he has accomplished the strategic victory on the cross, he now has to build a people. We saw that in our look at Daniel 7, that there is a group of saints that come with him and that will rule with that reign of iron. We saw that in Revelation 2.27. So he has to prepare them. This is what is taking place during the church age. This involves something new. So let's go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John, beginning in John 13, we have what is known as the upper room discourse when Jesus Christ is giving the Uh, a briefing to his disciples to prepare them for what is going to take place in the coming age. What is going to take place in the coming age. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, this relates the Holy Spirit to the giving of revelation, whom the world cannot see because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we learn that his ascension is related to the coming of another helper, and part of the function of that other helper is the giving of revelation. See, we wouldn't have the New Testament to study if Jesus Christ had not ascended. So part of the function of the ascension and session is to send the Holy Spirit and the giving of new revelation. John 14:26 states, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. So there's going to be a new dimension to the spiritual life based on this indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and the giving of new revelation that we call the New Testament. So that is part of the results of the current session. And then turn over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 7. Here Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So the ministry of God the Holy Spirit then is 
distinctly connected to the ascension of Christ. He must be seated at the right hand of God the Father, and it is following that ascension in Acts chapter 1 that we have the descent of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and it is when the Holy Spirit comes that he indwells believers. So then we ask the question, how does this session relate to believers? Well, it relates to believers because we receive the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit who establishes a temple inside of each believer for the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. Now, we've studied that in detail, and I'm not going to uh, take the time to go back and pull together that whole doctrine. But we have the present indwelling of Jesus Christ in each and every believer. And something is being accomplished during this time. And to understand that, once again, we'd have to go back into the Old Testament. Have to go back into the Old Testament rather than taking the time to pull those passages together. Most of you are familiar with this story. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, Samuel anoints David as king of Israel. And that occurs when David is approximately 17 years old. We don't know the exact age, but he was definitely in his late adolescent years. It is not until David is about 40 that he becomes the king of the north and the south, that he becomes, that he enters into his reign. During this time, he is under persecution from Saul. Saul is the king. He is the legitimately recognized king, the anointed king, under divine discipline. But Saul is nevertheless the king. He is the legitimate ruler over Israel. Now, David has been anointed and appointed to be king, but God hasn't elevated him or promoted him to that position yet. And what happens during this interim time... For a while, David serves in Saul's court, and he is a military leader and has some tremendous victories over the Philistines, who had the early uh, period of his defeat of Goliath, and then they, there were other uh, military conquests over the Philistines that followed. David developed a tremendous reputation with the people. He was very popular, and so Saul turned on him and began to persecute him, and David had to flee down into the wilderness of uh, Judah, and he lived for a while in the cave of Adullam and various other caves. And it was during this time that various outcasts and various other political refugees departed the the uh, uh, administration of Saul and linked up with David down in that wilderness area. And it was from those outcasts that David later appointed the key leaders in his administration. So what was going on was between the anointing of the king and his actual taking of the throne, there's this interim period that is analogous to the church age. Jesus Christ came at the first coming, but he's not going to be uh, not going to inaugurate the kingdom until he comes back at the second coming. And during the period in between, he is gathering to himself a group of outcasts, people who are looked down upon by the world, 
but it is from those outcasts that join up with Jesus Christ by faith alone in Christ alone and are saved and enter into the body of Christ and are baptized by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is those outcasts who are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ when he returns at the second coming. So the period of the ascension and, uh, and, and followed by the session is directly related to the formation of this body that will eventually rule and reign with him. And it is during that time that Jesus Christ functions as an advocate for believers because the moral problem is going to be faced, the sin problem is going to be faced, and Satan is going to completely or, or continuously challenge believers or challenge Jesus Christ with how he can let these sinful believers be a part of his body. And this is where 1 John 2, 1 and 2 comes in. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He is our advocate. That's what's going on today is that every time Satan charges us with being unqualified, Jesus Christ refers to the fact that he died and paid the penalty for our sins. Then in Romans 8.34 we're told, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. What's that? The session. Who also makes intercession for us. So as part of his ministry during the time of the session, he is building up that body. He is defending us as our advocate. He is in he is interceding for us. Now, in conclusion, in conclusion, the importance of the session are five. Five significant things about the ascension of Christ. First of all, it ended the period of his of the limitation of his divine attributes and the use of his deity and brought to an end his life as a as a man on the earth. Second, in the ascension is the occasion for his exaltation and glorification. With the ascension, he is exalted and glorified and seated at the right hand of God the Father. Third, it is important because it marked the entrance of resurrected humanity into heaven. It is a man who is elevated above all powers and authorities in the universe. Fourth, it began his present work in heaven, his intercessory work for believers as our advocate. And fifth, it set the stage for the entrance of the Holy Spirit into human history through the church and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the giving of spiritual gifts, which then becomes the basis for our training and service and is the basis for our preparation to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. Well, that wraps up our understanding and orientation of how the giving of spiritual gifts fits into the overall plan and purpose of God, especially in relation to the doctrine of ascension and session. So next time we will begin our study of spiritual gifts proper, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the challenge that we received, realizing that that what is going on today did not happen by chance, but this is part of your overall plan as you are exposing the flaws in Satan's argument uh, in the angelic conflict. Father, each one of us has a role to play in terms of our own tactical victory based on the strategic victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. He paid the penalty in full. You don't need to add anything to that. You don't need to bargain with God. You don't need to have a religious experience. You don't need to join a church or you don't need to reform your life. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's his righteousness, not your righteousness, that saves you. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God gives to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is on that basis that you are saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have learned today, that it may spur us on to greater diligence in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.